Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm really pleased to be sitting down with David Dennison, who is Deputy CIO of hedge fund Florin Court. Florin Court is a diversified systematic asset manager focused on trend following and systematic strategies across a broad range of alternative markets. Many of those markets which are not commonly traded by systematic macro and CTA funds. In today's episode, we discuss the merits of investing in strategies across multiple alternative asset classes. We are looking to trade markets that our investors don't have in their portfolio anywhere else at all. Main asset classes we trade are going to be commodities, power markets, that's electricity market. We're going to be trading interest rate swaps and then foreign exchange as well. We discuss why this diversification can increase prospective returns. I think the reason you're doing better with all those markets is mainly a function of the extra principal components and the extra diversification you have in your portfolio. We're constantly bringing new markets in. So we do around about 50 markets a year we've managed to find. And we also run through potential challenges with this diversified systematic approach. The big challenge is if everything goes wrong at the same time. And when you've got, I said, 15 principal components, that's a bit harder. So, David, thank you so much for being with me here today. Thanks a lot for the invite. And it's worth noting for our listeners that this conversation really marks the fourth and final in our mini-series where I've been speaking with innovative hedge fund and asset management founders and leaders on alpha strategies and their use of data in various different domains. The prior conversations, just as a reminder, have focused on, well, firstly, a discretionary and a family-run lens, where I spoke with Carmignac's UK CEO, Maxime Carmignac. And then secondly, a social sentiment and natural language processing lens with Periscope founder, Jamie Wise. And then an AI and reinforcement learning lens with Neo Ivy founder Rene Yao. And so now, finally, I'm really looking forward to completing this mini series with this conversation with you, David, on how you identify and extract alpha using your diversified systematic and trend following techniques. Hopefully, I can help you out there. I'm sure you will. So, David, could you start by introducing yourself in your own words? I'm a statistician by trade. I uh, did a maths degree. And after that, I ended up doing a PhD at Imperial College in Bayesian statistics. And interestingly enough, actually, my, uh, my professor at the time there was president of the Royal Statistical Society. Now it turns out he's president of the Royal Society. He's wow. moved up in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a great foundation for um, everything I went through further on. I, actually, I really enjoyed the academic experience at the beginning where you're doing a lot of research and you're just learning. You're learning about ideas that you didn't know about and you're competing against other institutions. Where I remember we were doing statistics and we had to try and predict do regression and classification problems and try and do those better than the guys at Stanford or Berkeley yeah. or other institutions in Europe. And I really enjoyed that sort of predictive game we were playing. I didn't realize at the time that was machine learning back in yes. sort of early 1990s. So did that for a little bit. Actually wrote a book on that in about 2002 that came out. Really enjoyed writing the book because it 
it gives you the opportunity to really express your thoughts more than you often get when you, you write a paper. But what I understood as I was going on, writing a book is about making things simple and understandable for other people. Yes. As you go on in academia, your job becomes making things more and more complex, which I really didn't like. You know, writing a grant saying, I take this idea, make it more complex. Mm. Oh, please give me some funding to do that. I just got, I don't understand. The, the best things I've done are simpler. And I really enjoyed the prediction part and the research part. And you lose that as you go on in the academic career. So in 2002, moved over to finance, managed to find a, a job with someone I knew at university who was uh, starting a hedge fund here uh, in London. And it just taught me an awful lot about how to start a fund from scratch because there was nothing there at the time. And um, it was an equity startup, different from what I'm doing now. But I learned a little bit about the business and about what you need to come up with predictive models. So I, I was working for an equity startup for, uh, for four years there. And then I went to another equity startup fund. And then I managed to find a job in the trend followers. And in reality, trend followers had a great 2008. Yes. So it was actually a good time to join. And I got that job at Man AHL and stayed there for a long time. And what I really enjoyed is taking some of the equity startup things I learned, which were quite different from what the managed futures world worked. One is sort of highly levered, take out all the factors, and one is directional, keep all the factors in there and try and time the market a bit. And bringing those ideas together, I found was just, I was surprised that the worlds were so different. So working there to 2014, learned a lot about trend following and I actually met all the founding partners of Florian Court and we got together to start a hedge fund. I didn't realize at the time how difficult it is to start a hedge fund. <laughs> if I had, maybe we would have thought twice. Fantastic. Thank you. I loved hearing your reflections on academic life and your points that simplicity and clarity are absolutely key. And there isn't necessarily an incentive in your mind to go one step further and make things more complex if not needed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, complexity I found, especially when you think about the signals you get when you're running financial models, is tiny compared to the amount of noise. So yes. when you have a complex model, when you're looking at daily data, there's, there's really not much signal there. And, and it's really, really easy to capture outlying points and capture spurious correlations. The most important thing is to to avoid doing that. And if you can do yes. that, you can help your models. Yeah. And I think this will ring true as we hear about your investment philosophy, the idea that your trend following is ultimately a simple technique in a sense. But I think your edge comes in the data you use and the markets you trade. And so I think your point about simplicity and clarity being key really speaks to the work you're doing now. Yeah, I've done all the complex stuff. So hopefully I can distill the important bits in there. And actually, the other interesting thing, I guess, when I look at people coming up now, there's so many different models you can find easily, which are already coded up. You know, if you look back 25 years, unfortunately for myself, none of those models were like in code. You had to co code them up yourself. Exactly. You were making those decisions about how to implement them as you were going. But now if you see the model in a package, you just pick the model and it's quite difficult to know all those different parameters or those yes. different things you might want to change to improve the predictability of that model. Yes. 
but it's really great to actually just go back, code it from scratch, and then you really have to learn and have to think about every, every yeah, step. Yeah, I've heard exactly that same argument from other investment professionals using complex AI, that actually rather than taking the off-the-shelf Python package, going back and coding from first principles gives much more flexibility. Yeah, because you know the, the assumptions they've made in that package. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. So we've heard about your background and your background in academia and writing a book, all absolutely fascinating. Can we turn now to Florin Court and the investment philosophy at Florin Court. What exactly are you doing here? So we are looking to trade markets that our investors don't have in their portfolio anywhere else at all. Everyone's got a long equity exposure somewhere, nearly everyone in their whole portfolio. And then a lot of people have got bunds, they've got US treasuries, they've got a lot of exposure to G3 or G10 markets. When you're looking for a hedge fund, you want diversifying exposures. And our job is to find as many diversifying exposures to our investors' books so they can profit from things that are hardly expected. You know, maybe the Peruvian Nuovo Sol goes up or down a lot. Try and make some money from that. Maybe the interest rates in Colombia are having a, a big move. Try and make some money from that because we know that probably in the rest of your portfolio, you don't have that. So our job is to try and profit any way we can from, uh, from things that happen in parts of the world that you don't expect. Fascinating. Thank you. So if I'm understanding correctly, your differentiated edge really is in trading markets that are less well known, that are less well traded by others. We're talking different geographic markets and perhaps are we talking different asset classes as well? Definitely. I think both of those. Put it in a little summary that I think we got from a consultant. If it's funky, Florin, do it. (laughs) (laughs) I really loved that. I only heard it a week or two back. But um, yeah, we're known for wanting to trade in markets like, I think the new one we traded recently was like aluminium oxide. We didn't even really know what this does until we, we look it up and then go, oh, okay, that's interesting. But it's got enough liquidity. We can trade that. If you think about what happened during COVID, there were plenty of things that happened that you wouldn't have expected. And you, you don't really know a priori where to look for things that might move. One of the most interesting things for us was If you thought before there's going to be this big COVID event happen, you would have thought that no one needs freight. You know, no one's going to be moving things around. But what actually happened is freight prices, they doubled, tripled, and there were loads of ships just stuck in harbors, couldn't go anywhere. It was good to be involved in that market. And freight prices went up because supply was so limited, even though demand was also somewhat constrained. Is that right? Demand went down a bit, but no one had crews to to man the ships because they all had COVID. Yes, so the supply shrank dramatically. So it sounds like your differentiated edge as a hedge fund is the fact you're trading all of these different markets across multiple geographies and multiple asset classes. And I guess my first question is, why is this so differentiated? Why are these relatively untapped markets? It sounds like these aren't particularly crowded markets. And why is that the case? What we want to do is run a very diversified hedge fund. And to do that, we have to keep to a certain size. And to keep to a certain size, we can trade those markets, which are slightly less liquid. You can think about oil markets. Yeah, if you trade oil markets, you can have an awful lot of uh, risk in oil and you can buy it today, sell it later on today, and even buy it again in the same day. But if you're trading oil or derivatives like oil cracks, you could be trading propane, butane, ethane, things like that. You can't trade it more than once a day. The bid offer is quite wide. You actually probably don't even want to trade it more than once or twice a week. But what you actually find is they're less crowded. They don't actually move quite so quickly. So one reason that some of the alternative markets are easier is because you have a lot more 
physical players and fewer speculators because speculators just think, oh, that's a bit of a pain to get that market in. You know, it's got quite a big bid offer. I won't be able to trade it as quickly as all those other nice markets I've got. I'll just leave it. And so our job is to go, okay, look, you know, we're a reasonable size. We're going to keep at a reasonable size. We can take that risk. I don't mind. I'm going to provide liquidity to those physical producers, just like CTAs were doing in 1980s for the wheat farmers and for the corn farmers. And that's how the CTAs really grew. Yes, no, that's a fascinating context. You must think of yourselves as a modern CTA in the sense that you are still trend following, but using new asset classes and diversified markets that Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily looked at so much previously. Yeah. And if you think about the number of independent principal components or factors you've got, independent factors in your model, you might go from a standard CTA of four to five to, you know, 12 to 15. So you've effectively tripled the amount of diversification you've got in your system. So if you think about you do the math, that's like, okay, root three times the sharp ratio I might get from one factor. Yeah. So hopefully you're about 1.7 times better sharp than you would maybe have if you had fewer factors. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing you describe your markets as ones where there are, there's a significant presence of physical players who are using these markets to hedge, presumably, in their day-to-day activities rather than the majority of liquid-listed equities being speculative players and investing players. Just for the benefit of our listeners, can you talk through what are the various asset classes that you really trade and how they've changed over time? Main asset classes we trade are going to be commodities, power markets, that's electricity markets, maybe in the US or in, in Europe, and gas markets too. We're going to be trading interest rate swaps. And you know that's going to go from Taiwanese interest rates, you know, Colombian interest rates to sort of European, Central European interest rates, and then foreign exchange as well. And, and there's a lot of interesting markets in foreign exchange as well, where we would have some African currencies as, as well as, you know, some more established emerging markets like Mexico, but you can also end up with Kenyan shilling. That's really helpful. Thank you for going through those. And finding the data for those markets in terms of prices, supply, demand, that sort of thing, how do you go about doing that? And is that a challenge in itself? Yeah, no, it can be a challenge to get data. Some of them are pretty easy. You can get from you know, your standard data providers, but other ones you really have to go directly to the exchange. You go, please, please can I have your data? You know, we found in some of the markets we trade are a little bit offbeat you might find the standard data providers providing the wrong data. So you have to double check a lot of what you do. But we don't mind doing that. You know, we have a checklist of what to do and we're very happy to do that. And then what's the best way for me to trade that? I need to find more than one counterparty. I need to find different types of counterparties. Yeah, okay. I use a bank sometimes, but also some physical players, some, some brokers. And how can I diversify my liquidity sources to improve my execution? It's not actually... Just the data you get, okay, you've got the price volume data that's going to help you out. It's also the post-trade data to make sure that is good. Also, like, how do I get how much volume I can trade? You know, where do I get that data from? It's not all straightforward. Yes. So we spent a lot of time talking about the assets you trade and how they've evolved and how you get the data for those assets. And the fact that in many cases, they're relatively new, they're relatively illiquid. It sounds like you might be capacity constrained in some cases. We haven't yet spoken about the techniques you then use to analyze that data. Can we turn to that? What I learned, I guess, from back to my Bayesian ideas is you've got to average over a lot of different models to add robustness. Don't just say this is the best model. 
and then be content with that. You know, when you think about, I've got a breakout model, but there's a hundred different ways if you look on how to write that breakout model. Make sure you're thinking about all of them. Even if you think about a crossover model, don't just pick one, you know, think about which sort of areas, what sort of speed do you want to trade at and cover the space there? Because one single model might be the best this year, but it's almost certainly not going to be the best next year. So our job is to think, okay, I'm running a trend model. About 85% of what we do is trend. How can I create a, uh, a robust model that's going to reflect how I think trends evolve in the market, which will depend on liquidity. It will depend on the speed I want to trade and how quickly do I want to trade that sector against that sector? Is there some benefit from trading different speed? Often there is because there's some extra diversification there. I can trade foreign exchange quicker than I can trade some commodity markets. So your modelling techniques are primarily trend following. And I think you said that 85% of your models are following the trend. And I know that you're in a category with multiple other trend followers. Why do you think that following the trend really is an outperforming alpha strategy over the longer term? I think the reason you're doing better with all those markets is, is mainly a function of the extra principal components and the extra diversification you have in your portfolio. Yes. I think you don't really know beforehand if that's going to work or that's going to work. I think S&P's got a chance to trend for sure, but you don't want that to be 40% of your risk. Is there anything around behavioral biases with trend following? You know, lots of macro variables trend follow, for example, GDP outperforming in the US versus Europe. That's a 10-year trend. <laughs> like there's lots. <laughs> Might be another 10. <laughs> I think people believe they've seen things at a level for a long time and believe that's about the right level. And we think about interest rates and when they move from zero forever and everyone kept going, they're still going to go back. They must go back. They must go back. They can't go up that far. And they just kept on going up because they just sort of break out of range. Everyone's going, wow, they can really move. Yeah. And they keep on going. And a lot of people are playing that reversion. Oh, it's it's gone too far. Yeah. But often it hasn't gone far enough. It's anchoring bias, I think we like to think of it as. You're used to it being in a certain place. So when it explodes, it really goes. Exactly. This is what I'm thinking of. Anchoring bias, status quo bias, this bias that things will revert to the mean. And in some cases they do. But when you go through profound economic shifts many of those things probably don't revert to the mean. And when we think about macro variables and relative GDP growth, sometimes these are multi-year trends. And presumably, those are the trends where trend-following techniques can be really powerful. Yeah, if you think about an emerging market, one could be outperforming for years and years and years. And you you want to be picking that up. But also think about those shorter-term times when things go very wrong. You find that trend-following models tend to outperform when S&P is doing very, very badly. And when other people's portfolios are doing very badly, you want to have something that hasn't got necessarily a long bias baked in that can help you out in those situations. And think about the 08, 14, all all those times when things were really moving very quickly. And this is when trend-following ideas did very well because things just moved more than anyone could believe. Yes. Was that US dollar? Was that interest rates? No one believed interest rates could get to zero either. No. Think after GFC. No, exactly. It was only the CTAs who kept going, oh, yeah, we we're going to be long. Well, I wanted to ask you, when are the periods when trend-following techniques particularly work well? If you look back historically, which are the years where CTAs and other trend-following strategies were particularly successful? And it sounds like bear markets are one of them. I mean, do you have a more nuanced answer to that question? I think big moves in dollar certainly seem to help. Bear markets, Mm. depends how quickly they come along. 
if they come very quickly, it's quite hard to be on the trend if they mm. come slowly. Yeah, but if you look at last year, yeah, trend followers did, did really well and S&P was down, you know, mm. 15, 20%. I think it's more the sustained moves that people don't expect. And, and these yes. are the times when you're thinking, how do I change my portfolio for this new world? But the sort of CTA sort of naturally moves the portfolio into the new world without you having to make that express choice about how to yes. move into that new world. Yes. I think that's what gives people some comfort. Yes. That also provides a really strong diversification argument, I think, to owning CTAs, perhaps in conjunction with a long equities exposure and other strategies, because it will take you into that new world where human behavioral biases might want to anchor you to the old. You've spoken about the various asset classes that you trade across power, commodities, foreign exchange, interest rates, etc. I would assume that the alpha potential is greater in the more esoteric, perhaps less commonly traded markets there. Is that correct? I think we found some evidence of that. Think about how an emerging market crisis comes along. At the beginning, you know, it's going a little bit badly and you get some data that's uh, yeah, not perfect, their GDP is not growing as people think, and maybe their currency sells off a bit. And then there's more and more bad things happen. Maybe unemployment grows too, and it gets a little bit worse. And then suddenly, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? And then there's a big run and you just really cannot afford to be long the currency at that yes. point because you won't be able to trade out of it. And we've seen that certainly happen quite a few times. Yes. And that speaks to the idea that in specific bear markets, you often find your greatest alpha potential by the sounds of things. Yeah. We're not thinking about bear market is or not US is down. Yeah, no, not, but not just individually yeah, in, in a particular country. And we try and make sure that in all those countries we're trading and we're trading the FX, we're trading the rates. And if we can't find the rates, we'll trade the credit market. And we're also trading the equity index because we want to be exposed as much as we can in all those countries. Yes, that makes sense. So something like foreign exchange, many crosses, I would assume, are extremely liquid and very well traded by multiple other players. Whereas when I think about power markets and electricity markets, for example, I would assume that some of them are much newer, much thinner, potentially not played as much by the speculative investors and more by the producers themselves. Do you notice differences in alpha potential between those two different markets? It's been very interesting to watch the European electricity market grow over the years from, you know, relatively small before. And there was really like German power was the power market and everyone started trading that. And what we found over the years is, you know, that quite simple market is now traded by quite a few speculators mm. and it wasn't before. And maybe that market's got a little bit harder, but you can go down and find other markets in Europe. You can trade Swiss power, Belgian power, Spanish power, French power, and they've all got different power mixes and there's all different reasons for why... There's correlation between them, but they're not perfectly correlated. But adding those extra sources means that when something goes wrong in power, maybe it gets a lot colder suddenly and the power price is going to go up, you actually find the most liquid market moves the most. Because yes. everyone just goes, the only one I can trade is the liquid one. Yeah, that's so interesting and a little bit counterintuitive to me, the idea that the less liquid markets that I would assume are less crowded and therefore more alpha generating are not always more alpha generating because the more liquid markets when there's going to be a big move and a big event are likely to be the first to move. Well, think about in your portfolio, if you need to get rid of beta very quickly, you trade yes. the S&P. Yes. You don't trade Polish equity index, do you? you yeah. No, you just go straight for the, the, the most liquid one. Brilliant point. And it definitely speaks to the advantage of you trading all of those markets, the more liquid, the less liquid, all of them. You've got the diversification benefits and you've also got the high beta benefits when there are fast moves. Yep. 
And you mentioned there that European electricity markets have evolved over time, you know, starting with the German market and then rippling out to other countries. And that speaks to new markets that you've been trading, I assume. So how has that evolved? Are you constantly bringing new markets into your wheelhouse and into your process? And if so, how do you go about identifying those new markets? For sure, we're constantly bringing new markets in. So we do around about 50 markets a year. We've managed to find everyone goes, how, how do you find 50? That is incredible. I don't know. It, it, I mean, it, it's a lot of what we do. In reality, the trend strategy is relatively straightforward. Finding new markets is a bit more difficult. So yes, in terms of the, the European power markets, how they've developed over the years and how they're growing, more and more countries are becoming more liquid there because I think regulators want those utility companies to be able to hedge forward the power price because mm. they want to be able to give. If you think when you uh, look at your electricity bill in the UK, you can pay a single price for the next year. Well, how do you do that? The, the they need to be able to hedge. They need to be yes. able to hedge that. And this is what we help those uh, utility companies to do. So those markets are actually growing. And also, I think regulators around the world don't like the idea of two players just coming together with an OTC contract. They want a lot more contracts to be centrally cleared. And so that actually produces more and more things for us to trade as time goes on. Yeah. So interesting hearing about the real economic benefits to you existing and your counterparts existing, the idea that you're actually allowing liquid markets to exist, which allow real producers to hedge, which provides more price stability to the consumer. It's fascinating because you couldn't make that argument necessarily with a very liquid equity-based strategy. No, again, we're going back to 1980s again with what the CTAs were designed to do. Yes, absolutely fascinating. When you think about your pipeline of 50 new markets for next year, if you manage to keep that momentum going, what sort of areas are you looking into? Well, somewhere like China are adding markets all the time. This month, we added aluminium oxide, we know about four or five new Chinese markets coming in the next uh, next few months we'll be able to add. I mean, I think being small and being nimble, knowing this is all we do, the ideas for new markets might come from the trader, might come from research, might come from the tech guy. Everyone is looking at all times. And we know what we can do. We know some things are going to be a bit more difficult. There might be a bit of a lead time and operations have to be a bit more involved. But we, we don't shy away from that, even if it's only a couple of markets. We can do that because... That's our reason for being here. That's our reason there, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you're adding as many as 50 new markets per year, is there an element of running to produce constant alphas on the basis that old markets and established markets become more and more crowded and perhaps the alpha opportunities wane and therefore you have to look to the new markets to find those new alpha opportunities? I think you want to stay at that crest of the wave, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yes. When we started six, seven years ago, yeah, we were near the front of that wave. Yes. But other people are coming along, yes. which has been good because it's mean that we're a, a subclass people understand now. But to stay ahead, we have to just keep on moving. Yes. So running to stay at the crest of the wave. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's, that German markets. power market I was talking about, everyone's trading that now. Yes. We don't need to kick it out. We just need to diversify it away in some sense. Yes. And your point about having more players is helpful in many ways because while they might be arbing out alpha opportunities, they're also meaning that you and your peers are becoming more of an established investment class for the allocators. Is that right? Yes. I think some allocators, when we started, we were in the big mix of all the CTAs. Yes. But now we're, okay, you're an alternative market CTA. I understand what that is. And five years ago, they wouldn't understand what that is. I understand the philosophy. 
Brilliant. So we've spoken about all of the different assets that you trade and the different markets that you find and the fact that some of them are much less crowded, much less well-known, others becoming much more known. And then we've spoken about your modeling and the trend-following nature. And I think you said 85% of your models are trend-following in one way or another. Now, I often ask the investment professionals I speak with, what's more important? Is it the data and the quality of the data or is it the model and the robustness and potentially the complexity of the model? And most of the time I hear that the data is the most important. How do you think about that? That's a good question. Data is obviously crucial to everything you do. And if you think about the price data for some of these markets, yeah, you could get big jumps, you get big moves. What's uh, a strange move? What's a move you don't expect? Is that the right move? Yes. And you're getting data from so many different sources. If you go into the standard standard markets in many ways, you, you can just use one data provider and he's going to give you everything. This is not what we're getting. We're getting, you know, five markets from there. That exchange is giving us some other data. So you're writing different ways to load the data, different ways things can go wrong. So you have to have a lot more processes around all of those markets. We cannot add a market if we can't check nicely, easily on a daily basis. Like if what we're getting is right, does it exist? And without that, we're not going to go anywhere. So yeah, the data is key. Yes. But having said that, the model is also pretty important by the sounds of it. Obviously, the trend model is important to tell you what to do, but also how to put the markets together. You know, we've got all these markets. We've got 450 markets. How do you put those together in a portfolio? Are you moving around your allocations all the time or are you keeping them relatively static? I mean, risk is much harder to explain, but it's also key to everything you do. Yeah. And on the subject of your models, more and more hedge funds are launching or discussing and marketing the fact they're using machine learning as part of their modeling. Is that something you do or you've done? And how do you think about machine learning in the context of all of your trend following models? Maybe not in the trend following, but in some of the economic models we're looking at using machine learning. We actually have um, a collaboration with a university in Abu Dhabi, which we're starting now. And we'll be trying to understand causal relationships between economic variables and price volume data mm. to sort of try and bring those together in the alternative market space. What we've actually found is the alternative markets are very good with, uh, with, with trend-following models, but can also be used with standard economic models like GDP forecasts or inflation rates or current accounts. Actually putting those together in a systematic macro way can work really well too. So can we just bring AI to improve those causal relationships so we're not so we're, we're finding relationships between price and economic variables that otherwise we might have missed. Yes, fascinating. And just to be clear, is the direction of causality from macro variable to price? We don't know yet. We're just starting the research. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I can see how on top of following the trend, if you have the backing of economic variables are also pro that trend, that can just add robustness to your model. Yeah. If you think about a particular emerging market, if it's current account is really bad and it's moving in a certain direction, that's worse. Yes. You've got fundamentals yeah. to back it as well as technicals in a way. Exactly. So there, there are yeah, some obvious relationships. If you've got enough data going back in time, you should be able to pick up. Thank you. So you've covered so many of the benefits to what you do. From what I hear, you're very diversified. You're covering multiple assets and multiple regions. In many cases, you're covering markets that are not commonly traded by other investment professionals. So you're providing major diversification benefits to uh, an end investor or an allocator. 
You are trading many untapped or less tapped markets where there's less crowdedness. There's certainly fewer speculative players relative to the producer type players in those markets, which again speaks to alpha potential from what I can tell. What about the challenges? What about the pitfalls? What sort of criticisms or concerns do you hear from the allocators, for example? One thing that's sort of obvious, if you trade the more liquid markets, you can do it all electronically. You don't need a trading desk. You know, we have to employ people to actually do some of those trades. Plenty of them we can do electronically, and we try and make sure that there's a lot of straight-through processing of those trades, obviously to minimize mistakes, errors. But some of them, you're going to use a chat to do the trade, and yeah. that, that's the way it's going to be, and you won't be able to do it any other way. So there is some human element to what you have to do. And also, you've got to worry liquidity in some markets can obviously dry up. You know, how do you manage that? Well, I mean, you manage that by having quite a few markets, so it, yes. it's not necessarily a big issue. And what you often find is the real problem with a portfolio, if you've got too much allocation to one thing and then there's a big move, you having to cut at completely the wrong time. If you're pretty well diversified and there's a bit of a big move and, oh, that's a bit painful, often you're doing okay if you can sit out and ride out that move. Yes, absolutely. And we spoke earlier about when trend following tends to work very well. And it's often when you see, perhaps not on a global scale, in certain markets, you see bearish moves that start slow and then precipitate. And you can be on that wave, you can be riding that wave. What about times when trend following is not helpful? I mean, presumably, it's regime shifts, it's structural turning points where you're not necessarily the first to get into that turning point. Is that a big challenge for your techniques? Well, again, I mean, the big challenge is if everything goes wrong at the same time. Yes. Okay. And when you've got, I said, 15 principal components, that's a bit harder. European gas prices and talking about sort of Peruvian currency don't have a lot in common. No. Or eggs in China. You know, there's, there's not much relation between them. Yeah. So it's really good to have markets where you know there's really, they're denominated in different currencies, they're, they're in different locations. It means it's hard for them to be connected. It's yes. hard for them to go wrong at the same time. But when you think about financial assets, it's quite easy for them to go wrong at the same time. Yes. Well, the other thing I'm thinking about is liquidation risks, capitulation risks. They're much greater when you've got a higher proportion of investment or speculative players in a given market. Whereas in your market, if you have a lower proportion of them, then those risks only exist if all of the producers across power markets and commodity markets all want to capitulate at the same time, which presumably is a much less likely phenomena. Yeah, I would certainly hope so. Brilliant. Well, this has been incredibly helpful, valuable, insightful. Thank you so much, David, for all of your comments on this. I mean, I've learned so much about the breadth of the assets that you're trading and the fact that really to stay at the crest of the wave, as you put it, you need to be continually looking for new assets to trade, new markets to trade, new alpha or arbitrage opportunities. And you've also spoken to the fact that, of course, there are more entrants to your field. And that's got pros as well as cons because they are helping you create this subcategory of hedge fund strategies, which is helpful for allocators. So when we think about the industry and your space in the industry going forwards, do you think there's more of the same? Do you think that you'll continue to seek new assets? Perhaps more and more markets will become tradable and traded and hedgeable. How do you see the industry evolving from here? Well, we're definitely seeing more and more exchanges launching more and more products. And some of that is driven by um, the sort of carbon agenda. I mean, there's been mm. a lot of new carbon emissions markets. Now there's yes. like three or four you can trade in the US. 
You know, there's a couple in Europe. There's other ones coming to market as well. You know, that's an area where we're, we're looking at to be involved in for sure. China just keeps on on growing, which is incredible. And the, the liquidity of their commodity markets is is huge. And so we will still be adding markets. We don't see that process. In fact, we were increasing the number we're adding each year rather than decreasing. Wow. Again, we started with maybe 200. So, you know, every year just keeps on moving along. Well, David, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today to go through all of this. No problem at all. I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to learn more about Florin Court, then do take a look at their website, which will be in our show notes. Otherwise, if you have feedback or questions, or if you'd like to explore our wider team content further, then do take a look at our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, they are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.